0: committee i welcome you with open
1: arms is that so how late do you stay open you don't understand i could have had class i could have been a contender
0: i could have been somebody you want answers i think i'm entitled you want answers i want the truth you can't handle the truth i hope they are watching they'll see they'll see and they'll know and they'll say why
1: she wouldn't even harm a fly What's up, everybody? You're listening to NoCo Cinema here on WGM+. Plus. We are your guide to cinema here in the city of Chicago. I am Tom Hush, and we've got a very special uh, segment today, very special guest uh, coming to us fresh off of the Cannes Film Festival. It's uh, our resident film critic. He writes for The Spool, uh, Film Monthly, as well as many other fantastic outlets. It's Matt Cipolla. Welcome back to the show, Matt. Hi. So um you you just got back from can uh, a couple days ago, right?
0: Yeah, I got back on Sunday n- evening.
1: Very nice. Yeah. Uh flight was good, I trust?
0: Yeah, it was fine. I mean, I, the flight, I don't know what it was. The way there was way rougher than the way back, but uh-huh. I mean, even on, but the thing is the way back also it's, you know, you're it was all during the day, so I feel like the jet lag wasn't as pressing, but I still right. had to force myself to stay up for 24 hours before I could <laughs> bring myself to go to
1: sleep. Yeah, I believe it. No, doing international travel is always a pain, but um, you got to go to one of the uh, most prestigious and sometimes controversial uh, film festivals <sighs> in the world. Um, I, you know, I reading a little bit about Cannes this year, it seemed like there was a little bit of... Controversy surrounding um, like the president of Canon, and I'm not as well read as I probably should be about the festival outside of yeah. reviews and stuff. But um, I know the festival has a reputation of kind of uh, playing favorites and being uh, picky and choosy about who gets to be in, whether they really deserve it or not. Uh, did you get a sense of that when you were there?
0: Not while I was there. I mean, I definitely got it just from everyone talking about it. Um, part of it has. I mean, there's definitely some things where there's, the, there's been this sort of growing discussion in the last two or three years or so about the, the quote-unquote relevancy of Cannes at this point, because in the last couple of years, the bigger awards contenders have come out of Venice um, in early September. Um, like, like last year specifically, um, the favorite was at Venice, whereas uh, Yorgos Lanthimos' previous two films were The Lobster and Killing the Sacred Gear both premiered at Cannes. Um, as well as Dogtooth, I believe, also did. But so, people are talking about um, why would they bring back, you know, uh, Adela Teeth uh, um for his four-hour twerking ass-fest movie um, when they didn't have the first one, when that premiered at Venice, um, especially if he's been accused of some pretty bad things, um, or Alain Delon getting a, a, a Lifetime Achievement Award equivalent um, which some people have been pissed about because he's made some comments about why, you know, like gay people shouldn't be able to adopt. And then, uh, but the president was like, um, you know, I, I like to separate, he took the, I like to separate the art from the artist sort of approach. Um, and which I, I, I don't agree with personally. Um, but then there were some, some other things like in terms of, you could totally tell that they were waiting to get uh, the premiere of once upon a time in Hollywood, even though it wasn't necessarily ready. Like they, they blocked off a section of the of the week so if they could you know Tarantino would be able to premiere it on the 25th anniversary to the day that pulp fiction premiered in in 94 um, they, they definitely have their their circle um, and I don't think you can really deny that but mm-hmm. it's kind of
1: depends on how you look at it no I, I it that totally seems to be the case it really does um and it, yeah. you know we're, we're as as people who follow festivals in your case attend festivals um i i don't think we were unaware of the fact that you know obviously there's certain machinations going on behind the scenes to make things line up and seem um you know sort of like serendipitous like oh wow what do you know tarantino's new film lined up for 25 years to the day of pulp fiction which won the Palme d'Or. wow that's that's so weird yeah so we're we're like aware of these things but um you know it's just when it's so up front and especially when we're dealing with filmmakers that are subject to controversy i would say you know um it, it becomes less in, <laughs> endearing in really many ways, and that's coming from someone who uh, I, I love. Tarantino. I've, I've really always been a fan of his films, but that said, that doesn't mean that I'm not critical of who this guy is as a person. And um, when it comes yeah. to the, when it come, comes to the separate the art from the artist. Like that's always a de- like it's it, that's kind of like an eternal struggle in a lot of ways because you can really kind of go it's really easy to make solid arguments for one way or the other but the way I look at it is yeah I'm gonna separate Tarantino the person from Tarantino the films but that but I'm also gonna criticize both for for for, yeah, exactly. for whatever their thing is and do I need to find Tarantino in Pulp Fiction or Jackie Brown is he in that uh, in terms of um, his psyche or his view of the world. I mean, probably, but who's to say? But yeah. I'm also going to say, hey, Quentin, like, what's up with, uh, you know, your depiction of Sharon Tate in, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? And granted, I haven't even seen the movie, but that seems to be one of yeah, the biggest criticisms I. coming out of it.
0: Or like the the last year, the the Kill Bill Uma Thurman debacle, right. that, that video that came out. Um, and it's, it's, I mean, if nothing, it's, odd to see it sort of personify and sort of shape like reshape itself year to year. I mean, I thought it was last year. I mean, I'm going to be honest, I was pretty cynical about how they made a point of having like a, a stand for solidarity for gender equality and to, to line up with the rise of the me too movement in mid 2008. And this year they didn't have any of that. Um, and whether or not it's because it's not as new and uh, topical anymore, I'm going to let everyone make up their own decisions on that. Um, right, right. But, yeah, I mean, there's there's obviously nothing uh, – there's a lot of frayed logic here. Um, and on top of that, it, it also kind of, you know, comes to a form in terms of it, what I saw. But it's like even aside from that, like what I saw at the, the at the festival – I wasn't blown away by anything. Um, there's like one movie I thought was great, uh, one that I thought was quite good, uh, and then most of them erred on the side of being just decent enough for me to say, yes, I would recommend this. Um, mm-hmm. But it, as opposed to, as opposed to like last year specifically, there was nothing like there was no burning or there was no um, right. like under the – there was no under the Silver Lake or there, was, there wasn't anything that was like a magnet for what the hell was
1: that. Um yeah yeah and and it's funny because uh both of those films you just mentioned are readily available on uh video on demand whether it's through uh streaming or um or uh you know you can get under the silver lake on on like v o d which seems kind of yeah. sad
0: yeah it's watching that entire movie's uh descent from being kind of a, a decent deal to just completely getting buried is It makes me sad because it's it's funny because it's like I thought it was pretty good when I first saw it last year. um, And then I saw it again several months later. And I was like, no, I actually love this movie. Um, And my initial reactions, part of them were not in. I was readily misinterpreting um, some of the things that David Robert Mitchell was going for. Mm -hmm. But then that didn't get a massive um, that didn't
1: get a ton of acclaim. And then
0: A24 kind of went on to bury that. Um,
1: yeah. They they have they have this strange ability to bury their films like and I mean any studio really can if they want to but a twenty four sometimes you'll you'll go and watch a movie and you'll be like wait this is an a twenty four like uh, even even something that's good you know a really good movie but smaller like uh, on Netflix I watched uh, De Palma which is a really interesting you know uh, yep. self examination of 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 an of an artist and. Um, I did not know that was an A24. They really didn't push it that much, it seems. They were just kind of like, yeah, this is pretty much for the hardcore De Palma people, not for really anybody else. But when it comes to Under the Silver Lake, it really is kind of a sad story because um, David Robert Mitchell obviously burst into the indie world with uh, It Follows, which is a movie I really, really enjoyed. And I was like, oh, I can't wait to see what he does next. And then a- Yeah, that was also a Can. That also played Can?
0: Yeah, it was it was out of it was director's fortnight. It wasn't official. It wasn't the in competition for the Palm right. But even before that, he had missed the American Sleepover in 2010. That was also in director's fortnight. Like oh he's, really? He yeah, all I believe that's all three. of The features, um, they all played at Cannes. Oh um, wow! Like kind of, a, he's kind of had a home at the festival since the beginning mm-hmm. of the decade. So it was kind of, I mean, it, it was kind of natural to see him go into being in competition, and then it just didn't play out. Um. Yeah, I mean, part of me has to wonder, It's like slightly off topic, but part of me has to wonder how much of that has to do with A24. Um, I believe in like around March 2018, they announced that one of the, if not the main founders of the company was leaving. And then right after that, there were a lot of differences in terms of how they were handling distribution and how they were picking up movies um, or how they were not really plugging them at all. I remember like for Native Sun, which played at Sundance, Ashton Sanders like, had to call them out and be like, are you going to promote this movie or what? Because I'm doing all the legwork here. And then they just were like, okay, here's a tweet. It's on HBO tonight.
1: Wow. That's that's pretty disappointing from a company that yeah. I've really respected over the years. And and um, in terms of, uh, <laughs> I guess, brand recognition as, a, as just straight up a viewer, not even as any sort of commentator on, on any of this, but... Um, when I saw a 24 in front of a trailer, I was like, Oh shit, this is probably going to be pretty interesting at the very least. Yeah. But, uh, I, like the,
0: I wonder if it's, Oh yeah. Sorry. Go ahead.
1: Oh, I was just going to say, um, we'll get into the moves, but, uh, make, make, make a comment here. Cause I'm interested.
0: Oh, I was just going to say, I wonder if they're going to be going sort of the focus features route in terms of, they had a really select number of movies every year and then they sort of diluted their filmography, so to speak um, in just terms of picking up seemingly everything. And then some of them get a green light and some of them just sort of fall by the wayside.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Especially like, man, you know, uh, they probably didn't need to pick up slice, (laughs) you know, uh, a, a valiant effort on the part of everybody involved, but pretty much an incoherent mess, um, when it comes and, and not very good, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I think that's a good way of looking at it is I hope that they're not diluting their own product because there was at least, a I don't know, three year period where pretty much everything they put out was critically acclaimed um, or at the very least got a lot of attention for being different. So let's hope, yeah. hopefully they can um, get a little bit back into the saddle with uh, their releasing schedule and, and what they're picking up. So um, let's let's jump into the, the films of Can 2019 here. Um, a film I've heard a lot about that I've been fascinated by is Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Um, you got the chance to see this and, uh, how do you pronounce the, uh, the director's name? Celine, uh,
0: I believe so, but again, I I'm I'm shit at French.
1: Yeah, so. <laughs> that's that's always the problem. Is that you know we we're like oh wow, Cannes Film Festival. I can't wait to see all these great movies and can't even pronounce the directors' names. Um, but it's a queer. Oh, exactly. Yeah, it's a queer period romance. Um, you called it an intimate visual feast filled with uncanny empathy and admirable aesthetics. Uh, tell us a little bit about Portrait of a Lady on Fire.
0: Uh, yeah, so this is a movie that takes place in the late 18th century. It's about uh, one woman named Marianne who is commissioned to paint the wedding portrait of another woman, uh, Lois. Um, and the thing is, it's, it's pr- admittedly tepid in terms of how it's structured and in, in almost like a wraparound flashback structure. Um, you see her at the very beginning teaching a, a painting class, and that goes back to her going off to this uh, isolated island, which is essentially I, wh- e- everything in this movie is isolated and it plays to really great and even sometimes disconcerting and intimate effect in terms of how it tells the story like someone would remember it. Um, it's only all the necessary characters. A lot of times it's just the two of them. Um, there's it's there's no men in the entire movie. Uh, it's just it, it really is just these two women um, and w- one of the, the main conflicts of it that I don't see a lot in, a, in, in movies, especially in romances nowadays, is the idea of this is a relationship that is um, completely impermanent. Uh, so, you know, how much can you get from actually living in it in the moment? Because, um, I mean, after all, this is a, a relationship that is commissioned. Um, and as you watch them uh, learn more about each other and get to know each other more and fall more in love. Um, you also get to see this portrait take shape in front of them. And it's almost this, this ticking clock in terms of the farther they, the farther she gets along in this piece of art, um, you know, the closer that this is going to be to ending. Um, there's even a line where they're looking at the portrait later on and, um, uh, uh, one of them says, how do you know that the portrait is over when you know, um, that your work is done here? And she just responds and says, you stop. Mm-hmm. and that's essentially that's essentially kind of like the, the the nexus of all the emotions of the movie, is the idea of... It, it's funny, too, because it's, you know, in theory this sounds like something that could be cynical or, or like fatalistic, the idea of um, not being able to get a ton out of a relationship and having to sort of wallow in uh, the fact that it's going to end sooner rather than later. Um, but it it lives in the now, um, but paints the now as part of the past. Uh, it kind of reminds me of like the there was a quote I remember Roger Ebert wrote in his review of Marie Antoinette. He said, "There's no, there's never any past. There's only the now," um, and mm-hmm. that's kind of that's the bubble that this movie lives in. Well,
1: um, that, that's a fascinating idea because I mean, um, I and I really like Marie Antoinette. I think that's a really overlooked movie at times. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that's an interesting. Uh, touch point, and you know, I'm I am interested in that idea of, um, you know, the the pa- Like, inter time is kind of squashed. Like, what what's happening now is kind of like immediately com- becoming what has already happened, and all that kind of stuff, um, and. I think I think that could be pretty cool. Obviously, um I have not seen this because I'm not I am not superstar critic Matt Cipolla. I did not get to go to con this year. Uh <laughs> but do do you know if they're um planning a, a US release at all? Or has it been did has it been picked up or does it need yeah? It need to be picked uh, up? Yeah, Neon picked us
0: up during the festival. Um and they really—they actually announced today that's going to be coming out uh, in December. It's going to start getting a platform release this December, which I'm kind of worried about just because this is such a, a, a classical, quiet, slow French, lesbian romance with no men in it, and I don't know if that's going to hold up to award season scrutiny. Yeah, um, how is in that, that
1: going to play against Star of, Wars? How is that going to play against you know the the rise of the Skywalker? Yeah. Uh, the... Uh, are you still there? Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> oh, okay, sorry, broke up a bit. Um, but yeah, uh, that. But also in terms of it playing, in terms of like it catching on or getting any sort of specialty audience. Um, mm-hmm. My main thing was I really like a lot of movies that Neon has put out. Um, right. But they can't seem to launch things, um, and I know they're new. But I'm just hoping that they're able to stick the landing with this. Because I mean, the only real thing that actually made any sort of splash, relatively speaking, was Itonia. Um, and then since then, they've made they've distributed a ton of movies that I love. But it's like Fox Lux came out in December, uh, like the, I think the same weekend last year. It was kind of thrown to the wolves and didn't get any right. traction. Or um, Assassination Nation, incredibly different. But they were just like, here we're just going to put this in 1,400 theaters. No platform release. They bought it at Sundance for 10 million.
1: Yeah. Um, well, and and the thing with um, Neon, I I really enjoy them. And Neon is the was started by the folks at um, Al, same folks behind Alamo Drafthouse, correct? Yeah. So they see they seem to me, and I think we've talked about this before, either in person or or on the show, about how Neon has kind of positioned themselves. Originally, I think they—I felt like they positioned themselves as a 24s kind of grittier cousin that puts out more genre fare that isn't as. you know, they, they're they going to put out things that are a little bit more in your face, like Assassination Nation, which I mean, as a which was a movie that I watched because you liked it so much. One, uh, so thank you, because I really I, I di- actually didn't enjoy it the first time I watched it. I was like, I'm not really sure what to make of this, but it recently okay. wound up on Hulu because Hulu has a. Um, has a has like a deal with with Neon in terms of streaming and stuff. I watched it again at yeah. home, and I I enjoyed every second of it. I was like, wow, I can't mm-hmm. believe I did not like this the first time I watched it, and maybe it was just so overwhelming to me that I was like, ah, I can't, I can't do this. But uh, second time, around yeah, it's I'd a really lot. It. And
0: yeah, and they also like again going to their sort of grittier, you know, stamp. They had revenge before that. Loved revenge, um, loved revenge. Yeah, revenge is great. Um, that is a lot too. Well, um,
1: it, it's 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 super frustrating. Then I think that um, you know they just they're they're just not doing the legwork. They're not even trying anymore. It's, or they're not trying at all at times to promote these pictures that they spend an exorbitant amount of money. I mean, how much did they 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 got uh, Assassination Nation from Sundance? Yeah, from Sundance for yeah. ten million. It was a bidding.
0: It was a bidding war with. It was a bidding war with Netflix, and I. I'm incredibly happy that it got a theatrical release. even know, yeah. no one saw it in theaters. But from a business pers- perspective, it should have been on Netflix.
1: Yeah, no, and and like, um, I, I can see that. And who knows how it would have done on on Netflix? Because there's certain, there's so many things on Netflix I have such a problem with, and the way that they handle certain movies. Um, you know it's like they just pick up stuff that like could have maybe been good and then like they they do legitimize things that people would have normally just completely skipped like uh even though i don't like this movie hold the dark um jeremy selnier's uh third or fourth picture i I think i don't know his his most recent picture uh no i maybe a few people would have seen that um but it maybe got a wider audience, and for Assassination Nation, it was always going to wind up a cult classic. It's just too, uh, it's 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 too much of itself in in the best way possible for it to really be something to be appreciated by the wider uh, wider public and revenge as well, which is why um, Neon seems to be a good home for it. But even things like Colossal, which I think was one of the most like deeply. Uh, affecting films i saw that year you know and um total genre piece that deals with alcoholism and uh kaiju yeah. and toxic masculinity who knew who knew that that movie could be made and then neon gets it and like no one really sees it despite having uh massive names in it <laughs> so yeah hopefully a uh, portrait portrait of a lady on fire will fare a little bit better um so yeah i
0: wonder if they're trying to. I wonder if they're trying to course correct their, their brand, so to speak, because, um, I mean, in, I, so far in 2019, they also have been putting out stuff that, in terms of their first two years, feel completely out of left field just in terms of um, Amazing grace, which is the Aretha Franklin concert documentary, mm-hmm. um, and Biggest Little Farm, which is a wholesome movie about a uh, uh, an all-organic farm in Southern California, and then they're picking up a really slow period piece. They also have Parasite coming out in yeah. October, Bong Joon-ho's new movie which I stayed in line for two hours for and didn't get in
1: oh no and it won the palm no the palm
0: door I know I was pissed I
1: know Uh, and he's he's amazing I love Bong Joon-ho I mean I um I remember watching the host as a kid and I was like (laughs) holy shit this is the greatest thing I've ever seen I really lost my mind with that but um, speak you know, let's uh, let's get into a little bit of the Korean cinema. I was really interested by your review of the gangster, the cop, the devil, uh, a blood-soaked yeah. Korean action flick. Uh, tell us about that. Uh,
0: so this is another. I like to at least see a couple movies that I don't know anything about, and this is coming out soon. I don't know what. Uh, so WellGo USA picked this up, and they specialize in, in Asian cinema. Especially and very gory th- th- Asian cinema. Yeah, and um, they this is apparently slated for June seventh, which is a week from tomorrow.
1: Really, uh, or a week
0: from today? <laughs> Good God! Uh, so I have no idea. I have no idea how what the release strategy of this is for. Maybe that's completely thrown out the window since I saw that on Box Office Mojo like a week ago. But um, I tried to go in to see some things that I don't know anything about, and I ended up seeing a uh, steppia coated cheese fest. Um, that's sort of a, a a vetted uh recreation of watching something late at night on cable by yourself and i had fun with it um it's not great it's decent it knows what it is it um so i mean you kind of get what you're going for just off the title itself um which essentially i mean the plot essentially follows a gangster who is attacked by um some sort of criminal who is ramming into people on the highway and then saying oh let me get your information and then he, he attacks them um and he's this titular gangster is completely shaken up by this and pissed and so he enlists the help of a uh young chiseled from stone police officer um and for their own respective reasons they go searching for who they assume is going to be a, who is a serial killer um and for the first maybe 45 minutes to an hour um it might test some audience's patients, especially if they're not in the wheelhouse or in the mood for it, uh, just in terms of its, its comparatively broader sight gags, um, which I wish they didn't lean into as much, because in the later uh, half of the movie, it becomes a lot... It becomes surprisingly nuanced just in terms of its technical aspects. Um, there's some really good editing here, namely in terms of the chase scenes. Um, a lot of really good... Um, a lot of really good cuts that essentially um, trick the audience into um, seeing one thing in their mind and then misdirecting it. Um, and again, it's nothing profound, um, but I, I had fun with it. it was yeah. especially uh, a nice a nice reprieve from seeing stuff that is more quote unquote. And here's a fun, annoying phrase for you: high art. Um, especially <laughs> at can like this premiered out. Of, this premiered out of competition. It wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't competing for anything. It just happened to be there. And I was like, the timing works out. I'll do this. And I had fun with it.
1: Yeah, that was well, good to hear because, um, you know, as you said, you get you can get a little tired of the quote-unquote high art of Khan uh, and, and what they're showing over there. So I'll keep my eyes out for this. I really enjoy Wellgo. Um, I think they put out some pretty pretty interesting stuff. Um, I mean, they put out the, uh, the restoration of Ichi the Killer, um,
0: oh go ahead that, yeah. uh, I was going to say yeah this is not yeah but this is it's funny I was thinking about this as I was writing about it this is this is pulpy and silly but it is not and it, it gets gory at points but this is not you know Ichi the killer this yeah this is, is not Takashi Te- Te- this, this is not audition. yeah this is not that level of insanity you're not going to get nipples cut off or anything
1: <laughs> well that's good to hear uh, i'm yeah i mean i'm looking on fandango actually right now because i was like oh are there any showtimes in chicago and yeah they're listing as opening uh next week june 7th so um if i can catch it yeah. i'll try to see it um let's mm-hmm. move on over to uh pedro almodovar uh pain and glory mm-hmm. um a lot of folks were kind of Looking at Pedro as being the front runner for Palme d'Or this year, uh, whether or not it was because his movie was the, you know the the best, the most deserving of merit, or because of his just career in general, um, the feeling I got is that like there was a lot of speculation. Oh, could this be the year that Pedro Almodovar finally gets his his Palme d'Or? Obviously, it wasn't. But uh, tell us a little bit about Pain and Glory. Uh, so this is his meta, uh,
0: you know, auto critique uh, film that I feel like everyone is, in, I don't know if they're entitled to make, but they certainly feel entitled to make it. Um, this is his sort of take on the all that jazz formula in terms of a self insert character who's played by uh, Antonio Banderas, who so immediately right there, you have um, one of his most regular collaborators playing uh, a version of himself. Um, who is a film director and the twilight of his career, um, whose, uh, most notable film is being, um, programmed for, a a retrospective at a local theater and people want an interview with him, but he doesn't want to budge. And he is also talking with his, uh, he's usually just hanging out, smoking heroin and doing cocaine with his regular actor. Um, who again is sort of a, it, a self-insert for Antonio Banderas himself. So there's a lot of fun refractions of um, everyone involved in the film and how they're portrayed on the on uh, on screen. Um, but as he's dealing with his own uh, issues regarding mortality or his dwindling career, he gets he gives us what must be a bunch of flashbacks of him as a small child. Uh, living with his mother, played by Penelope Cruz, another regular collaborator of his, um, with uh, their life in rural Spain. And there's a lot of... At first, it plays specifically as a, a meta-commentary or a, an introspection for the director. Um, but where it really caught me later on is when it it uh, all of a sudden straddles the line and then jumps more into a look at the the use of art throughout childhood, the way that art um, runs parallel to and sometimes contradicts your religious upbringing throughout your childhood. Um, also, add into the mix sexuality. Um, Almodovar is openly gay, and this movie also has some some fun seeds that germinate to uh, a pretty affecting extent in terms of watching these flashback scenes of this of this man then a young boy, sort of realizing his sexuality when he's like six or seven um and none of these are entirely uh running alongside each other they're more sort of bubbling up in a sort of primordial stew of you know your half-remembered childhood and they play well um they're definitely it's if nothing else it makes me look back in the first half and say oh i wish that some of the the self-inserts weren't so obvious Mm -hmm. um but it's it's also one of those movies where you know once you get to the very ending, it it just has one of those endings that sticks to the landing, and you go,
1: huh, okay. So you 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 know you would say that uh, it was largely li- li- by and large successful as as a film.
0: Yeah, I liked it quite a bit. Um, it stuck with me more
1: than I expected it to hmm mm-hmm. uh well i'm always fascinated by um you know when the when directors eventually get to that whole like self-insert phase where they're just like talking you know they're like was my career really mean you know all that kind of stuff yeah. and it's it seems to be uh difficult to walk the line between introspective and masturbatory um and yeah. uh this the I, you would say that this largely falls into uh genuinely self-reflective
0: yeah, and I, but the thing I like about it too is that um, when it steps away from its more obvious self-inserts, it becomes something pretty universal. Whether or not uh, the, a given audience member is going to relate specifically to its uh, the the plot threads in terms of sexuality or Christianity or uh, seeing and taking in art throughout your childhood, there is a universality to it that I think lends itself really well to uh, a wide audience. Um, it's not to say it's a massive crowd please or anything. It's, it's, it's not a novel Dovar film, and although it's, it's you know it's something more akin to H- 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 Julieta which was the previous movie. It's not you know tie me up, tie me down, or I'm so excited or anything like that.
1: Okay, okay. Well, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I I gotta bring this up now. This is not a can review. This is something that I, uh, I that is near and dear to my heart. Um, you didn't like the new Godzilla.
0: Oh, (laughs) no, I didn't. Um, Oh, man, are are we going to do this?
1: Um, I'm kind of interested because, I mean, I have not seen it yet, but um, I've always been a fan. I've always been a Godzilla fan, and I know that people like me that are really into Godzilla and kaiju movies in general are a very fierce sort, um, especially in terms of, like, You know they want they want things to be the way that they want them to be in a sense. Like I I did find it funny that um, the 2014 Godzilla got a lot of complaints that we didn't see enough Godzilla, and now this one, the general consensus is that like, whoa, way too overstuffed with monster fights. Like, there's no human, there's no human element, uh, or the human element is just like not very good, um, and and at times insufferable, um, which I can definitely understand, but. Um, I know as someone who grew up watching, uh, Godzilla film after Godzilla film, like, pretty, I would say I would see, I've seen, uh, the lion's share of the 30 odd films that are part of that franchise. Um, mm-hmm. when it comes to the human stories, I'm like, man, I can't imagine that they can do any worse than some of the stuff that I've seen from, like, the, uh, from like the mid 80s or or even like the what the Showa era uh, uh, pardon me the Showa era which is like the earliest Godzilla films like that that shit gets bad like it's really bad. <laughs> like I was I I spent uh, I was watching the other day um, from 1991 Godzilla versus King Ghidorah cuz King is my boy uh, one of my favorite on-screen monsters of all time and um just it's just like the acting is just so terrible and you can you can only get the english dub like the copy i have is an english dub and it is it is hilarious so uh, that that uh, suffice it to say when it comes to these new Godzilla movies i'm like my bar is like very metered at something so much lower for Godzilla i'm like if i'm going to see a Godzilla movie if i get to sh- see shit blow up and monsters kind of fight and all that kind of stuff. It's probably going to be good enough for me. But obviously, you um, you took some exceptions to some parts of that movie. Tell us a little bit about that.
0: Well, the main thing is, it's I. So the thing is, it starts off as sort of a, an extension, and then of the 2014 Gareth Edwards Godzilla, and then it very quickly veers into a course correction or an attempted course correction in terms of everyone had their complaints about there's not enough Godzilla. In the the previous one from five years ago, this one monsters are pretty much everywhere, uh, which is fine, of course. That's that's what that's the movie they're trying to make. There's also a lot of people, and a lot of people who don't matter, and I don't care about them, uh, which is unfortunate because I really care about all the actors. This is a pretty stacked cast. I mean, yeah, Vera yeah. Farmiga's in it. Um, she, her husband in the movie is um, Kyle Chandler. Coach. Their daughter is. Yeah, I know. Their, their <laughs> daughter is Millie Bobby Brown. Um, O'Shea Jackson Jr. is in there. Sally Hawkins is in there. Ken Watanabe is in there. Um, but it, but then they're just sort of saddled with these really bad, and they're not, it's not like they're archetypes. They're, they're just sort of gimmies, um, with a bunch of domestic drama that I really don't care mm-hmm. about. Um, and it's, it's not a, it's not like a horrifically long movie. It's, I think it's like two hours, 12 minutes. Um, but it can feel like it at times. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there isn't much variation. A lot of the first half is a is the half-assed um, human elements. Um, but the thing is, it's also shot with such a drab sort of platinum color palette that looks like a PA sort of. Build their bottle of Mountain Dew voltage on the camera. Yeah, and I remember that everything. line from
1: your review. I, that that did, well, yeah. that did make me chuckle.
0: I really I really liked that. Everything's like this opaque shade of blue. Yeah. Um, and if you know if they're feeling generous and there's an explosion, things will become yellow for a little bit. Or uh, if they're standing if they're standing in front of like a warning light, maybe there'll be like a hint of red. Mm-hmm. But overall, it's pretty it's pretty unsatisfying to look at. And once you get to the monster fights. Uh, which there are plenty, Um, you know, you're thinking, okay, now we're getting to what this movie is actually, you know, based on. The thing is, you get a good sense of what these monsters look like, um, but they're shot and cut in a way that the climactic fights feel a lot smaller than they should. Um, Mm -hmm. You'll get get individual shots of um, Mothra, for example, Uh, And then you'll get an individual shot of Godzilla. And then you'll get, um, you know, whenever you get a wide shot, it's pretty much just Godzilla standing in a a big CG ruin of, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, just scorched earth. Um, There isn't the the grandeur that I was expecting or hoping for. Um, And then it just sort of ends. Um, You know, the first half goes on for too long. The second half is kind of underwhelming. And then it just pieces out. Um and it, there's an
1: after credit scene,
0: so if you wanna stick around for that, feel free. It. This is part I, that-
1: I know I will. <laughs> I know I will because it, I am a total sucker is, for this shit.
0: This, and this is the thing, because they're setting up this is part of a universe. Remember this remember when Kong Stall Island came yeah, out two yeah. years ago? This is the next one is uh, Godzilla versus Kong. Um which they don't they don't necessarily this I mean to its credit this movie does stand as uh, an individual film. It's not like it's you know coasting off of um its existence within some sort of larger universe um but this it, it, at the same time you're kind of thinking okay i wonder if this will play better in the existence of something else but as for now it's just sort mm-hmm. of there it
1: just it makes it does make me wonder how these directors get these jobs I mean I guess I guess Gareth Edwards makes sense because he made a movie called Monsters, which I actually fucking hated. I hated that movie. I thought it was insufferable. Um I thought like the like talk about bad human characters, I just I could not I thought the premise was amazing and I thought the special effects were used to uh an amazing like like a, a sparse degree where i was like really interested in the world and gareth edwards is an amazing vfx artist um he's that's like his total world so putting him in charge of of godzilla 2014 made sense and really i thought that movie i think that movie is better than people give it credit for um but yeah i, I would say i was a fan but i thought it was okay and it like again it had a lot of a lot
0: going for it technically it was shot by Seamus McGarvey who shot we need to talk about Kevin Yeah, and, and look, Nocturnal Animals
1: it looked great it it had that going for it again it, the weakest part as with any Godzilla movie is the human characters and even mm-hmm. Brian Cranston Brian Cranston like went for it and I appreciate him for doing that I really do because mm-hmm. he um he was the only one who seemed to realize that the only way to make this shit work is to go full melodrama and yeah. uh you know, Aaron Taylor Johnson is I don't I don't really understand him as an actor. Uh I don't really get why he, he's particularly yeah, popular. He's not good. No. no, he's not good. Uh I he's very um, he's very handsome. He is very handsome. Um but uh I also feel kind of bad for Ken Watanabe because he's just kind of fallen into this role of like, you know what, we need a really a uh, uh, thoughtful Japanese guy who's who's going to be like the really self serious Japanese guy, and and is going to be Ken Watanabe, who is an actor of immense talent and probably yeah. a lot better than um, these movies are allowing him to get away to to do. Um, when it comes to Godzilla: King of the Monsters, it's directed by Michael Doherty, correct? Yeah, he did Trick or Treat and Krampus, so it's not odd.
0: I, I guess I could see why he they chose him, but it's yeah. sort of a, it's, those are very small movies that are more steeped in genre than this one is. Because the thing is, this movie you would expect to be more steeped in the genre fare, but it also, mm. again, in that first half, it keeps spending its time on environmentalist ideologies that don't really go anywhere, right. and then the movie wallows in its destruction, so it doesn't really hold much weight and it just feels like filler mm-hmm. um and i i just want to mention this before i forget bradley whitford i really <laughs> like you but no this so he's he's the, <laughs> he's the comic release in this movie um and i okay so i was talking to clint worthington who's the editor for the school and he was like i'm so mad that his character is based off rick from rick and morty and i was like wait what And he's like, "Yeah, they went on the record as saying that." And I was like, "Oh my god, oh no!" (laughs)
1: Because his his name is
0: Doctor Rick in the movie, and he—that should be Mm -hmm. fine, sure, whatever, comic release. But he is just throwing out these, you know, limp-wristed zingers left and right. I'm just like, I get it. You're funny.
1: Yeah, that's too bad because I I do love Bradley Whitford, and um, no, that is too bad. Um, yeah, yeah, I I kind of
0: want him to do like more of like a. Uh, a more sardonic Cabin in the Woods
1: type of, type of thing. But here he is, feels like
0: he's in an entirely yeah. different face, hell, like
1: broad. Hell, even give me Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, Bradley Whitford. I'll take that, Bradley Whitford. That was a pretty good show. Um, so, King, King <laughs> of the <laughs> Monsters. Bradley Whitford in the one episode of The X-Files where he was like in a <laughs> volcano for no reason. Oh, man. All right. I, I'm, I'm definitely... Still gonna give them my money because yeah, of course, go for it. I'm not. It's not like I was offended by this movie. No. Some people online were like, "How dare you? Have you ever seen a kaiju movie?
0: Get out your well, head out of your ass!" And that's like, and that's the yeah. thing.
1: That's the thing. Like kaiju movies, it's it, there's it's such a difficult genre because at their best. At their absolute best, they function as, like, this awesome allegorical science fiction about, like, humanity and, like... I mean, w- lest we forget the original Godzilla, the whole thing is just, like, dealing with national trauma. That's that's Godzilla. Yeah. That's the OG yeah, Gojira.
0: The and they make it... They they There's potential here to use that formula to a really good extent and to make it feel a lot more timely right. um, because, again, there's there are, like, shades of some sort of environmentalism mm-hmm. to this film, specifically the idea of, oh, there's too many people, um, all these monsters are ruining everything, but Godzilla's gonna, they kind of, because, you know, the setup is there's all these, these different monsters fighting each other, Godzilla's enemies with those monsters, let's pit Godzilla against them, yeah. Godzilla can sort of you know, cleanse the earth, so to speak. Um, they, you know, it has its pulse on what made Godzilla a project of its time when it came out post-World War II. Um, but it, it just, it, again, it just feels like a missed opportunity, uh, especially because when it starts, you're thinking, oh, you could really do some stuff with this, but it doesn't go all the way. It doesn't go all the way in making this, mm-hmm. um, again, here's the word for you, high art, or it doesn't just go into being complete, you know, cheese fest
1: yeah it's a like, it, that's that's too bad that you know at the very least if you can't go high art go cheese go go big cheese yeah. um so and and to to all the listeners if you um if you see Godzilla and you don't like it and you want something more traditional luckily for you toho the original company that uh Made Godzilla created Godzilla uh, put out an awesome Godzilla film in 2016 called Shin Godzilla that is very good and if you ever wanted to see a mashup of a monster movie and the uh, the political film the political comedy in the loop uh, that's for you. Check, check. Have you seen Shin Godzilla? Yeah. Did you like it? No, I just I think it's funny that no, I did. I just thought it was funny that you compared it to In the Loop. It's it's basically it's a, it's a comedy. I was laughing throughout half that movie, and it was. I think that was yep. the intent because I'm just like, oh my god, look at how ineffectual the government is. Um, Matt Zepola, <laughs> Matt Zippola, uh one of my favorite critics. Love reading you. I'm so glad that you're you're writing a ton of stuff for the Spool, um, created by Clint Worthington. Another excellent critic, uh, great film thinker as well. It's nice to see. A yeah, we fresh- him yeah yeah he's 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 been kind enough to donate his time and um uh, if you're listening clint you're always welcome man just uh just mm-hmm. send me an email um but it's not, you know honestly in in all seriousness it's very nice to see a new site on the scene um you know getting getting more film writing out there and uh I know it's i know it's tough to be a film a film writer whether you're doing um you know reviews or features or what have you, but um, you guys are doing some really great work, and I'm, and I'm really enjoying a lot of it, so um, people can follow you uh, at Sapola Matt on Twitter. I know, they, didn't you get locked out of your Twitter account fairly recently because oh, you changed uh, your age? Oh, I was oh, so mad. Okay.
0: Don't even get me started. Yeah. Twitter is... Okay. On top of that, okay, there's a whole thing because i'm like okay let's see how i can contact twitter and actually try to get some sort of help they have a number they have like a Mm helpline and when you call there's an automated voice that says thank you for calling twitter we do not offer assistance over the phone please email our support and i'm like well why'd you put the number on the site idiot
1: to fuck with you matt yeah to fuck with you
0: yeah but no (laughs) no i'm back on twitter that's that was a fun adventure like two months ago it's Mm -hmm. scarred me since um but no, in the meantime, there's that. There's um, Donate to the Spool Patreon. That'd be great. Um, there's a lot of other great writers on there, like Michael Snydell. Scout Tafoya has some stuff on there. Um, there's a lot of cool people doing features. Robert Daniels, who we had on here to talk about Sundance, yes. he yes. wrote about some other stuff recently. Um, and then on the meantime, I had a on rogerreeper.com about Enter the void. I did I saw about? that.
1: Yeah, cuz me and, me and Chaz are are uh, acquaintances and um Oh, yeah, wow. Yeah, she's Oh man, she she threw that out on Facebook. I was like, "Wait, I know that dude." I've seen that. Yeah, guy I know. I
0: was like, uh. Yeah, so there's yeah, just keep an eye out. Yeah. Keep an eye out for all the people I've mentioned just in general.
1: Please. Yes. And again, as as Matt mentioned, uh please support great film writing you can support the spool on patreon and i'm sure there's a bunch of a bunch of little goodies you get for becoming a subscriber aside from the uh warm feeling you get when you support great writers and great uh creators and great thinkers so uh again matt thanks so much for joining us man
0: of course thanks for having me again
1: all right, uh, we will talk to you all next week., uh, this has been No Co Cinema here on WGM plus. We are your guide to cinema here in the city of Chicago. I am Tom Hush, and uh, have a good one.